up, you beautiful bastards? Hope you're having a fantastic Thursday. Welcome back to the Philip DeFranco Show, and let's just jump into it. And the first thing we're gonna talk about today is just this outright horrible story coming out of Japan. According to reports, a 41-year-old man set fire to the Kyoto Animation Studio. It said that he splashed a flammable liquid around the studio, then setting it on fire. Reportedly, this monster screaming, die. And the horror he ended up inflicting is just devastating. According to reports, at least 33 workers were killed and more than 30 were injured. As of right now, the situation is still developing. There is not a known or at least public motive. The man responsible has reportedly been detained and also hospitalized for his burns. But right now, there's really just a, a lot of pain and not a lot of answers. Following this news breaking, we've seen just a lot of people horrified and grieving online. People at a loss of what to do, just remembering some of their favorite works from the studio. There's also been a GoFundMe started for the victims of this attack. As of recording this video, that GoFundMe has raised over $943,000. And regarding that, we'll be donating a portion of the profits from this video today to that GoFundMe. But ultimately, that is the story as it is right now. There, there's not a lot known. Uh, hopefully, more information comes out. But still, really, no matter what comes next, this is just devastating and heartbreaking. My thoughts obviously go out to all those affected. And really, I guess the only question that I, I, I can kind of tag on to this story for fans of this animation studio, I, I would love to know what your what your favorite works were from them, what they meant to you. And I ask that because often in these horrible times where there's where there's not. There's not a silver lining. There, 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 it seems like there's nothing positive to grasp onto. It's this horrible moment where we also get reminded that what we do in this life, it, it lives past us. Or what we do, what we say, what, how we treat one another, it, it lives on past us. And sometimes the best way to honor that is to openly remember. But yeah, that's where I'm gonna leave that one. And then let's talk about a story that unfortunately we have covered on this show in the past. Back then, we also said that we should keep our eyes on it because it's very likely it is going to get worse. And unfortunately, that has proven to be true. The World Health Organization has now declared the Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo a public health emergency of international concern. The outbreak began in August of 2018, and it is the worst since the one that began in 2014 and ended in 2016. Since it started, over 1,600 people have died, and there have been over 2,500 cases of the disease. And earlier this week, the outbreak escalated when the city of Goma, which sits on the border of Rwanda, saw its first confirmed case. And that case in Goma is also kind of scary. The World Health Organization is trying to trace who this person was in contact with, but according to reports, Congolese officials said the situation was made more difficult as the priest who was diagnosed had used several fake names as he traveled to Goma. And Goma is home to nearly 2 million people and it has an international airport, which has also put pressure on WHO to evaluate the situation. And WHO's director general said in a statement, it's time for the world to take notice and redouble our efforts. We need to work together in solidarity with the DRC to end this outbreak and build a better health system. Extraordinary work has been done for almost a year under the most difficult circumstances. We all owe it to these responders coming from not just WHO, but also government, partners, and communities to show shoulder more of the burden. Who has also released recommendations for the DRC to follow during this emergency? This including strengthening at-risk populations, conducting cross-border screenings and screenings at main internal roads, and using optimal vaccine strategies among other things. They also listed recommendations for neighboring countries, which included working urgently with partners to improve their preparedness. This along with mapping population movements and sociological patterns that can predict risk of disease spread. Now that said, as far as the risk of an outbreak going global right now, who is not concerned there? Saying risk remains very high at national and regional levels, but still low at global levels. And because the risk is not yet global, who wants to emphasize that countries should not restrict trade and other business with the DRC? In fact, they believe that if countries do so, the outbreak would actually worsen, saying that those measures would actually push the movement of people and goods to informal border crossings that are not monitored, thus increasing the chances of the spread of disease. Now, as far as why we have seen this continue to spread, there have been a lot of challenges in dealing with this outbreak. Earlier this week, Dr. Ted Ross spoke about how attacks on Ebola responders have made things difficult, noting that there have been almost 200 attacks since January that have resulted in seven deaths, also saying in a statement, we are dealing with one of the world's most dangerous viruses in one of the world's most dangerous areas. Every attack makes it more difficult to trace contacts, vaccinate, and 
perform safe burials. Every attack gives Ebola an opportunity to spread. There have also been a lot of questions about who is behind this violence and why. You know, in the past, we've talked about a number of reasons why these responders have been attacked, but also according to a New York Times report, some of it is coming from mourners who are upset with responders after losing loved ones to the disease. According to the report, one person who works in burials said that mourners have threatened to throw workers into open graves, adding, last month, a mourner brandished a hand grenade, sending everyone scattering and leaving a three-year-old Ebola victim unburied. Also separate from the attacks, the World Health Organization has been criticized for being slow to respond to the outbreak. This because this was their fourth meeting discussing whether or not to declare an international emergency of this kind, with many believing this should have been declared at one of the earlier meetings. But still, it should be noted that some progress is being made in treating the outbreak. Research published earlier this month showed that two other experimental treatments were found to be effective. Vaccines have also been effective during the outbreak. According to the World Health Organization, over 161,000 people in the DRC have been vaccinated and over 10,000 people in three surrounding areas have been as well. But ultimately, that is where we are with the situation now. It's still a big issue. Seeing the numbers rise as they have since the last time we talked about it is very scary. You know, seeing that number not only go up, but the cases spreading regionally, that is getting more concerning. But ultimately, that is where we are with this right now. And of course, I'd love to know your thoughts on this in those comments down below. And then let's talk about an update to a story we've been covering this week, as well as what happened in North Carolina last night. So, you know, this week we've talked a lot about Trump's tweets aimed at the four congresswomen known as the squad. Right, representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, and Ilhan Omar. Right, and in Trump's initial tweets, he says that these progressive congresswomen of color who originally come from other countries should go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came. Right after that, there was a lot of backlash from Democrats, and even a few Republicans. You have people saying the statements were xenophobic or just outright racist, many of whom pointed out that AOC, Tlaib, and Presley were all born in the United States, and that Omar is a war refugee from Somalia who's actually lived in the United States almost all of her life and has been a U.S. citizen for nearly 20 years. But of course, as we mentioned, Trump has continually defended his remarks, arguing that they're not racist, repeatedly saying that the squad hates America and they should be condemned for their past remarks, not him. Then, as you might remember yesterday, there was this whole vote in the House, and there was this, this moment of chaos. I'll link to yesterday's video down below. Right now, as I mentioned yesterday, and I have in previous coverage, right, this, this isn't a slip. This is this is the Trump game plan, right? As I mentioned yesterday, after he made these remarks, he actually went up in the polls for Republicans. And yesterday I said, not only is it the playbook, but we should expect to see an escalation. That said, I did not think that it was going to come just hours after we posted that video. So last night, the president had a rally in Greenville, North Carolina, where this moment happened that you've probably already seen. There were obviously a number of reactions to all of that. There's also a lot to say about that, but we're also gonna try and talk about the rally in general, and specifically the, the targeting of Omar. So in this rally, you know, we see President Trump kind of playing the hit. The leading voices of the Democrat Party are left-wing extremists who reject everything our nation stands for. Republicans know that America is the greatest force for peace and justice in the history of our world. But these left-wing ideologues see our nation as a force of evil, the way they speak so badly of our country. They want to demolish our Constitution, weaken our military, eliminate the values that built this magnificent country. And then he starts talking about Omar. He actually talks about her for a while and he says a number of things. That said, I'm gonna link to the full thing down below, but for the sake of time, we're gonna be trying to just show some of the most significant claims that Trump made. Along with that, after each claim, we're gonna try and provide where this is coming from, what's the context, what are people saying? So he said this. Omar minimized the September 11th attacks on our homeland, saying some people did something. 
I don't think so. Okay, so that claim comes from a statement that she made while speaking at Council on American-Islamic Relations. And there, her full quote reads, It doesn't matter how good you are if you one day find yourself in a school where other religions are talked about. But when Islam is mentioned, we are only talking about terrorists. And if you say something, you are sent to the principal's office. So to me, I say raise hell. Make people feel uncomfortable because here's the truth. Here's the truth. Far too long, we have lived with the discomfort of being a second-class citizen. And frankly, I'm tired of it. And every single Muslim in this country should be tired of it. CARE was founded after 9-11 because they recognized that some people did something and that all of us were starting to lose access to our civil liberties. Although I do want to quickly note that, that CARE was actually founded in 1994 and not after 9-11, but that, that also doesn't change the full context of the quote. Right, so essentially it appears that the full context of that quote is because you have extremists who were Muslim. Muslims in general, right, non-extremists shouldn't be okay with just being treated as a second-class citizen, right? Notably in that speech, she even uses the word terrorist. Also, and I, I always try to do this, if you want to see that speech for yourself, I'm going to link to it down below. But we also had Trump saying, she pleaded for compassion for ISIS recruits attempting to join the terrorist organization. Okay, so regarding the claim that Omar said to treat ISIS recruits with compassion, that refers to a letter that she wrote on November 8th, 2016. The context there is that nine Somali Americans were found guilty of attempting to join ISIS. One defendant in particular was found to be, quote, a committed, dedicated, and enthusiastic member of this conspiracy who was highly motivated to go to Syria, join ISIL, and perpetrate violence on that terrorist organization's behalf. And Omar was just one of many there who wrote to the judge, seemingly on the defendant's behalf, recommending a lighter sentence than the 30 years the prosecution was recommended. The letter there is long, but to kind of give you the gist, Omar's letter doesn't mention the accused by name, but seems to be recommending that in general, judges should consider lighter sentences for young people attempting to join an extremist group. She doesn't say this is because she supports ISIS nor anyone joining ISIS, but rather because she believes that a compassionate and restorative justice approach is a better way to combat extremism. Right, and she's essentially arguing that a 30 plus year sentence for a 20 year old man is essentially a life sentence, and it feeds the narrative that extremists use to recruit, saying such punitive measures not only lack efficacy, they inevitably create an environment in which extremism can flourish, aligning with the presupposition of terrorist recruitment. Americans do not accept you and continue to trivialize your value. Instead of being a nobody, be a martyr. And here's why she asked for compassion in particular. She argues the best deterrent to fanaticism is a system of compassion. We must alter our attitude and approach. We should refocus our efforts on inclusion and rehabilitation. A restorative approach to justice assesses the lore of criminality and addresses it. And adding, if the guilty were willing to kill and be killed fighting perceived injustice, imagine the consequence of them hearing, I believe you can be rehabilitated. I want you to become part of my community and together we will thrive. Also, after the president made that claim, he continued and said, Omar laughed that Americans speak of Al-Qaeda in a menacing tone and remarked that you don't say America with this intensity. You say Al-Qaeda makes you proud. Al-Qaeda makes you proud. And here the president's referring to a 2013 interview Omar gave her a local PBS show in Minneapolis where she was working as an activist. And in that interview, she talked about how Islamic terrorist groups seem frightening to Americans because the words seem foreign, even though they usually come from everyday Arabic words. And in it, she says she took a class about terrorism in college and goes on to say. The thing that was interesting in the class was Every time the, the, the professor said Al-Qaeda, he sort of like, his shoulders yeah. went up and you know. Yeah, he's in command like, here. Al-Qaeda, you know, hospital. Also very notably, nowhere in that interview does Omar say that she is proud of Al-Qaeda or that she supports them. In fact, she describes Al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups linked to them as evil and has said that they are taking part in terror around the world. Also at the rally, Trump hit on something that a lot of people online have been saying. And at a press conference just this week, 
When asked whether she supported Al-Qaeda, she refused to answer. She didn't want to give an answer to that question. So that specific claim comes from a press conference that the squad held earlier this week to formally respond to Trump's tweets. And when a reporter asked Omar what her response was to Trump's claim that she supports Al-Qaeda, she says this. I will not dignify it with an answer. I do not expect every time there is a white supremacist who attacks or there is a uh, a white man who kills in, uh, in a school or in a movie theater or... Um, in uh, in a mosque or in a synagogue, I don't expect my white community members to respond on whether they love that person or not. And then, of course, at the rally right before the send her back chant, uh, there was this. And obviously and importantly, Omar has a history of launching vicious anti-Semitic Screens. And so that refers to a few things. Like we talked about on the show before, back in February, both parties criticized Omar after she posted a tweet suggesting that pro-Israel groups buy off politicians. In that since-deleted tweet, Omar wrote, it's all about the Benjamins, baby. And as you might remember, that tweet got a ton of backlash from people who believed that the post was offensive because it used what many see as an anti-Semitic trope. And Omar ended up apologizing for that tweet, saying, anti-Semitism is real, and I am grateful for Jewish allies and colleagues who are educating me on the painful history of anti-Semitic tropes. And then adding, at the same time, I reaffirm the problem role of lobbyists in our politics, whether it be the AIPAC, the NRA, or the fossil fuel industry. There's also a second instance where Omar responded to another member of Congress who criticized Omar's stance on pro-Israel lawmakers, writing, I should not be expected to have allegiance slash pledge support to a foreign country in order to serve my country in Congress or serve on committee. There you had some people finding it offensive because they felt that Omar suggested that pro-Israel lawmakers have dual loyalties to both Israel and the United States. Trump also attacked Omar for her statements, but people have also argued that a month later he made a very similar statement. While speaking in front of the Republican Jewish coalition, Trump referred to Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu as your prime minister to a group of Jewish Americans. But I stood with your prime minister at the White House to recognize Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. But yeah, that was a lot of the big stuff from the rally. Obviously, I'm trying to, to squish this down to fit it into a show, but I'll link to everything down below. But of course, following this rally, there were a lot of reactions, and a lot of the reactions came from the champ. We saw I stand with Ilhan trend on Twitter. And of course, we saw a ton of Democrats standing up for Omar. 2020 candidates like Warren, Biden, Sanders, and Harris all tweeting about it. Also notably, send her back and I stand with Trump trended as well. But also very notably, we did see conservative voices condemning the chant as well. Although sometimes uh, there'd be like a condemning, but also a shot at Omar. For example, you had the likes of Ben Shapiro responding, Vi, Omar is awful. She is a radical anti-Semite with terrible views. But then adding, she is also an American citizen and chanting for her deportation based on her exercise of the First Amendment is disgusting. Former Congressman Joe Walsh responding, it saddens me beyond belief that the standard bearer for the Republican Party, my party, is making send her back his re-election rallying cry. It's so ugly, it's so un-American, it just saddens me beyond belief. Although we also saw Republican Lindsey Graham respond to the question of, do you think that this was racist? Isn't it racist though to say send her back? No, I don't think it's racist to say, was it racist to say love it or leave it? I don't think a Somali refugee embracing Trump would not have been asked to go back. If you're a racist, you want everybody from Somalia to go back because they're 
black or they're Muslim. That's not what this is about to me. Love it or leave it is not the same as thousands of people chanting for the president to send her back to her country. A legal US citizen who was an elected official. And regarding the note of if she was embracing Trump, they wouldn't be chanting that. That sure as hell sounds a lot like an argument of, well, if she was one of the good ones. Whatever, the whole thing was disgusting. Also, President Trump has talked about this today and he now says that he was not happy about the chant. Are you concerned that your supporters chanting, you know, to send her back? Well, I have tremendous support, and I wasn't happy with that message that they gave last night. But I was not happy when I heard that chant. He was also then asked, "That's what they do." Well, I didn't like that they did it, and I started speaking very quickly. I could have, I could have stood back. Excuse me. So he claims I heard it, and then I started speaking very quickly as like a way to get them past it. So let's see. Omar has a history of launching vicious anti-Semitic screeds. And she talked about the evil Israel. Sure, that was super fast, Phil said sarcastically. And what I would say to that is if it actually bothered the president, he would have addressed it. Trump's not known to be a guy that that holds what he's thinking inside. And so at the very least, I have to say, it looks like he's fine with the situation at hand because he needs to rely on that vote. But ultimately, this is where we are with this situation. Also, if you think things are going to calm down from here because the president was like, oh, I don't agree with it, I think you're incredibly wrong. This appears to be, I'm gonna keep talking about it, to be Trump's strategy, to push the line, push the line, push the line, get caught crossing the line, kind of backtrack, and push the line, push the line, push the line. I mean, just like for a quick second, think of what is normal today when you look to the news and then think back to the stuff you were seeing like in 2016 as far as what was happening in the, in the, in the public forum. It's absolutely insane. But yeah, that is where this garbage fire moment of uh, news and our history ends today. Thank you for watching another episode of The Republic Is Falling. And that's where we're going to end today's show. And hey, if you like this video, love if you took a second to hit that like button. Also, if you're new here, you want more of these dives into the news, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Definitely ring that bell to turn on notifications. Also, if you're not 100% filled in right now, I put out another news video as well. You can click or tap right there to watch that. Or maybe you just missed yesterday's show and you want to catch up, you can click or tap right there to watch that. But with that said, of course, as always, my name's Philip DeFranco. You've just been filled in. I love yo faces and I'll see you next time.